If you like what you hear, come and visit me at youtube.com slash tiptoe the tank and see this content in all its glory. Onwards we go. When last we left off, Turlin and Link were beginning their ascent. The knight has all sorts of tools at his disposal to aid him in the climb, if he can just remember that they exist and not spend 20 minutes at a time trying to climb something nigh impossible in lieu of just, you know, using the ascendability. The higher he goes, the more difficult things become. Eventually, the broken-up sky islands that featured Zonai constructs give away to small Viking-esque boats with conveniently placed bouncy tops that I'm, I'm sure, like, well, Hylia put there or something like 10,000 millennia ago. Once he's at that top layer of circling bouncy boats, the way into the vortex is clear, and it's a pretty grand sight being above the snowstorm. After being subjected to all that snow and dark sky for so long, the bright sun is a welcome reprieve, but they can't stay to watch the sunset. There's an ark to be conquered. This vessel is straight from a children's song. Once, long ago, the Rito had to contend with another unknown disaster, a different sort of upheaval. According to the song, the Stormwind Ark was left behind by a god that fell to the earth. The fall of this being destroyed the balance of the world and it threw it into chaos. The Rito aided this supposed god in returning to the heavens, and they left behind the Stormwind Ark as a thanks. So just so we have it straight, a god crashed into the lands, destroyed the ecosystem, required birds to get back out into orbit, and then thanked them with a boat. Thanks a lot, god. Once they make contact with the great boat, a familiar shape appears. Look who it is! It's Zelda, once again, here to be weirdly standoffish. Tulin sees her first and tries to run up to her, but it looks like she activates, or maybe agitates, something in the center of the ship and then she's just gone. Whatever is under this hatch is the source of the blizzard, they're sure of it. Neither of them question why Zelda would be mucking around with such a thing, as apparently they both have the memory of a goldfish and don't remember who it was that was just there 15 seconds ago. But never mind that, there is a mystery to be solved here, namely what's under that hatch and what's producing this massive blizzard. Problem is that they can't reach it. There's grating holding it in place. It's shut tight. But let thy fears be few and brief, for a voice from the heavens calls down to them with hopeful direction. Five locks hold the grate shut. Unlock the locks and things will open right up, and then they get to see what's inside. Tulin repeats exactly what the voice just said in case Link missed any details, and then the duo are off. The Ark is an impressive ship. Unfortunately, there's not much to be said beyond that. It was built by ancient people or a god with not but a few lines in a children's song to give it significance. Therefore, in the grand scheme of the story, this great ship is just a series of obstacles to overcome. Find a turbine, activate it with Tulin's wind gust ability, and it will undo one of the locks holding down the main hatch on the deck. Do this five times. And during the search for each of the turbines, one can't help but wonder, where is Va Meadow, the divine beast? Few in Hyrule have even made mention of any of the old champions or the divine beasts, as though they just didn't exist. Did the blizzard knock it out of the sky? Can it be repaired? Are there new pilots? Have they been decommissioned? Have Purr and Robbie taken them apart? In that case, where is the old Sheikah tech from the Calamity, or did it just get buried? Well, who are we to question continuity? The focus now is on the Ark. One after the next, the two of them unlock that hatch, and within is something pretty radical. Tulin and the knight are hit with a force so powerful that they're thrown high into the sky. This will serve as their fight arena, and from within the Stormwind Ark comes Kolgera, Scourge of the Wind Temple. At first, this beast appears to have no weaknesses. His carapace looks strong and sharp, and Link's gloom-ridden arsenal isn't very well fitted for breaking through that sort of thing. But eventually, the strong wind torrents break parts of its shelling off, revealing a very soft flesh beneath it. 
Better yet, if he can get under Kolgara, then it's got a soft underbelly. The more harm he dishes out, the tougher the fight gets, as it should. The Scourge of the Wind Temple throws out tornadoes, icy blasts, and charges at him from portals. The knight earns his victory, cutting down the great beast Kolgara alongside the young warrior Tulin, and delivering the lands of the Rito from a terrible, snowy fate. Finally, the skies are clear, and though it will take some time for them to fully recover, the inhabitants of the mountain can breathe easier now. Infrastructure can be rebuilt, trade can resume, and supplies brought into the Rito village. In the sky, the Ark and its many old ships will remain. Before Lincoln Tulin, another of those big, kidney-bean-shaped stones appears, just like the one that he found at the Temple of Time at the Great Sky Island. It shrinks down in size, and it flies before Tulin. The young warrior takes the lead and he touches the stone. They find themselves in that realm between, this time in the presence of an ancient hero from a long-lost era. He has no name or story to give. He simply states that he served Hyrule's first king as a warrior and a sage. To see one of his own descendants so at ease with the winds makes him proud. Kolgara was summoned into the Stormwind Ark by the Demon King upon his reawakening in an attempt to stop the Rito from reaching the Ark. The Great Ship is where the old sage's secret stone was kept safe. It's a temple of sorts. The Old One tells both Link and Tulin a bit about the Imprisoning War, specifically about the sage's terrible fight against the Demon King in that final hour. King Raru had gifted them each a secret stone, so that they might all stand against Ganondorf together. Though they were all mighty in battle, they fell against the Demon King. It was after this defeat that Raru made his great sacrifice to seal away this Ganondorf to save the world. After the battle ended, each of the sages were visited by Princess Zelda before she departed from this world in the form of a dragon. She told them each that one day a knight named Link would require their aid. She begged each of the sages in private to lend him that aid in the far-off future. Without every single one of them, he would fail. And of course, this ancient hero agreed, and he promised that the Rito people would always be an ally in the future. Though troubles have been eased for the Rito, there is still far more to be done for both Tulin and Link. The Demon King will inevitably recover his strength, and all of Hyrule must be ready for it. Now that Kolgara is gone, the next sage may take this old hero's place, and it is Tulin who will take that mantle. The Ancient One gifts the young warrior the secret stone of the Rito, and with it an even greater mastery over the winds. Tulin has grown much over the last few days. His ego has been tempered and his purpose made clear. He will gladly fight beside the knight and whatever allies may be found in the future to stop the Demon King. Like a true pal, Tulin lends Link a part of his own strength, so that even if he's not physically there, he can aid the knight as an avatar. Link may now call upon the Sage of Wind's powerful wind gust, so that greater distances might be traveled by air. Not only that, but the avatar of this new sage will aid Link in combat as an archer. Down the mountain slopes, snow begins to recede, a warm breeze returns to Tulin's people, a cascade of summer has finally deemed the winter too long. It's time to set things right. Back home, Tulin tells his family everything that has happened and of his new responsibilities. As a display of his pride, Tulin's father Tiba gifts his son a bow, a beautiful gesture and a powerful weapon. It was something that he had always meant to give to Tulin when he came of age. He's proven himself worthy of wielding it now. Tulin and his kin will remain here to look into the Stormwind Ark and why Princess Zelda was in their vision of the past. Why was the princess amongst the sages who stood against the Demon King? They will be counting on Link to continue his search for answers as well. When the time comes for the Sage of Wind's aid to be lent, Tulin will be ready to answer that call.
Link takes a trip back to Lookout Landing to touch bases with Pura, let her know what he found at Habra, update her on the Rito people, get some information about monster hunting crews, just make sure things are going okay. She mentions that Link should catch up with the young researcher Jasha on her chasm research, which must mean the massive craters in the ground that Link has been spotting, the ones with the gloom coming out of them. Before he heads out to his next destination, he decides to do just that. He goes to see Jasha. The young gal is in the middle of a minor spat with a much older Robbie. He apparently is not a good listener and she has had just about enough of it. Robbie doesn't want her getting into dangerous situations, like spelunking. But how else is she supposed to get information? Well, she instead turns to Link and explains to him a bit about what they call the depths. When the upheaval happened, they were suddenly made very aware of an entire layer beneath their feet, like Hyrule is weirdly hollow. Jasha has a theory that the depths were once inhabited by an unknown people, but she needs more information on what's down there. To appease her, Robbie volunteers himself and Link to go down there instead. They'll go find anything they can which resembles the figures on Josh's rock slate and take photographs of it. Josh supplies Link with a few resources to help him light the way down there, and then he's off, right out the gate, off into the field, straight into, oh dear mother of Christ. Welcome to the depths. It is pitch black down here, which is fair, not like sunlight reaches down here. Robbie apparently took off into the void without his researchers, with only a few lights left in his wake to mark where he went. When Link finally tracks Robbie down, he's found a statue that looks just like the carving on Josh's rock slate. Robbie unlocks the camera function on the Pura pad for Link, and they start snapping photographs for Joshua. For all you psychopaths that want to keep exploring well, you enjoy the depths. Good luck down there, adventurers. Let's get back up to the surface for now, though. Joshua gives Link some zoanite ore, a handy crafting material that he'll need a lot of in the future. She has a few more leads on things to do down in the depths, but that was quite enough of the pitch dark for now. Link is instead going to head for the next location on the Pura Pad, Death Mountain, home of the Gorons. Putting aside most other distractions, the knight makes it back up to the fairly familiar landscape of the Goron homeland. But the closer he gets to the city, the more noticeable the quiet becomes. There's not a lot of folk walking around the mountain. There's not really any mining taking place either. The loudest thing on the path is Link's own footsteps, and it's hard to not notice what looks like a mass amount of gloom flailing out of the top of the mountain itself. When finally he finds some workers, an elder Goron is harping at the younger fellows about eating on the job. Marbled rock roast, not food meant for outsiders, but the Goron apparently loved the stuff. Love it to the point of abandoning all other aspects of life. Like how we might treat cheesy garlic knots, the Goron are doing that with these rock roasts. This elder Goron hasn't partaken in the feasting, and is extremely frustrated at the gorging going on around him. Seems Yenobo Co. was in the process of building an amusement park of some sort. Yenobo, as in that fellow from a few years back that was afraid of everything that moved but overcame it to help Link reach the divine beast Varudania, which is nowhere to be seen and no one has made mention of it by the way. But it seems like in the years since the calamity, Yenobo has become a businessman of sorts and founded Yenobo Co., which handles everything from mining ore to processing ore to selling ore. To help bolster the Goron economy, he had planned out a park called Minecart Land. But once these marbled rock roasts were unearthed, everything got derailed. Now there's no economy to speak of in the mountains. Most Goron are obsessed with consuming these rocks. Some of them have a frightening obsession with it. Getting to Goron City itself really just, God, what happened to these people? 
Workers are sitting around eating from a pile of rock roasts. Vendors are unhappy about having to work at all. A few elders and children are still trying to carry on amidst the chaos of nothing. And then Yenobo himself enters the scene and he looks like such a douche, such a big, soggy, floppy douche. But more strange than that, he's antagonizing. The Yenobo from the Calamity Times was a very reserved and careful person, but this guy, he's a piece of work. When he recognizes Link, his knee-jerk reaction is, what do you want, like a real jackass. Yenobo runs the cities these days, and he isn't shy about rubbing it in. He's become a bit of a terror and possibly drug lord, question mark? Hard to tell, but he's ruling this place with a cast iron fist. Link asks about Princess Zelda's sightings, and the kiddos that work for Yenobo spill the beans a bit. A lady fitting her description has been seen talking to the good drug lord, specifically about the marbled rock roasts. But Yenobo shuts the talk down quickly and tells Link to shove off. Since Yenobo Co. unearthed the rock roasts, things have changed for the worse around here. It's like this place is run by the mob now. Old Man Bluto tells Link that Yenobo has set up shop a bit up north. And since he is the source of all this and the only lead that Link has for Zelda, it would be worth it to drop by for a visit, potentially a session of finger breaking. Hopefully it won't come to that, but it's definitely not off the table. Anyways, it's a small hassle to get up to Yenobo Co. headquarters, but nothing too dramatic at this point. When Link finds the entrance, two kids are acting as bouncers, and they're not doing it because they enjoy it. Yenobo is forcing the kids into a potentially dangerous situation. Link isn't the sort to lash out, though, and once they see that he's there to help, they let him through gladly. Yenobo is in there talking to a blonde lady right now, they say, someone that neither of the kids really like. She's the one that gave him his strange mask, and after that happened, he became the jackass that he is, and the rock roast addictions began. So, Link has arrived right on time. Looks like uh, Zelda's having a bit of a powwow with Yenobo, during which he breaks down more of that weird stone into edible pieces. Now, why oh why would Princess Zelda be commanding him to do something so heinous? It's very out of character. The kiddo bouncers beg of Yenobo to stop what he's doing and take off the mask, which seems to snap him out of his poor behavior for just a moment until Zelda says something to him that just drives him a little bit bonkers. Those magical words, marbled rock good. This man will die for his roasts, and I don't really blame him. What comes next is a bit of a brawl between the one who is clearly not himself and the knight. Link just lets him throw himself under the wall and knock himself silly, and then he just, you know, slaps him around a little bit with a sharp sword. Nothing too extreme. Each smack from Link breaks off a bit more of the mask that apparently Princess Zelda gave to him. When finally the entire thing is gone, things settle down a bit. Freed from the mask and presumably from the control of Princess Zelda, Yenobo strikes a more familiar chord. The Goron children immediately run up to him just as pleased as Pi that he's finally back to his normal self. Everything to him has kind of been a blur since he got the mask, and he'd like to speak with the princess about what's been going on. They all spot her leaving the cave, being just as weird and unspeaking as usual, but if there was any doubt before that something was quite amiss here, let it be cast aside with this. The princess brings the cave entrance down, trapping them in the intense heat of the underground. Yenobo has a handy-dandy charge attack in his arsenal that can easily break through walls like this one. All Link needs to do is tell him where to aim the charge and let her rip. Yenobo and the boys take off to go look for Princess Zelda right away, but she's already long gone. And Yenobo is getting a clearer picture of the troubles taking place on the mountain. He had gone up it some time ago to check out a rumbling taking place. And when he came back, he had that mask on his face. The rest is just sort of fuzzy. But maybe if they climb up the mountain, they'll find the princess? It's worth a shot, at least. 
So, a mini adventure for the two, making their way up to the top, far more enjoyable of an ascent than the one during the Calamity. Man, that old Sheikatech was nasty. Now they get to build flying machines and put fans on mining carts and throw Yonobo around like a bowling ball. It's good fun. Near the top of the mountain, Yonobo's memory starts to work again. He remembers the spot where he saw the princess, that it was here that he got the mask, and that's the last thing he recalls happening. The mountain begins to rumble again, and they spot the princess walking towards the center of it, before a massive explosion begins. From the center of the crater emerges Moragia. Composed of the marble rock that the Goron have been eating, this thing is three-headed bad news. Yonobo has never seen anything like this on the mountain. Where it come from is a baffling unknown. They gotta take care of this thing, though. How convenient that nearby is a flying vehicle. Wonder how this got up here, even has a steering stick. Well, let's not think about it too much because now begins a sky battle. Link and Yonobo have to dodge around the mountain, avoiding meteoric attacks from Moragia while getting close enough to launch their own counterattacks. It's a lot of fun and far too short. When they destroy it, the mountain completely caves in, leaving a long gloom-ridden hole down into the middle of it. Yonobo's immediate concern is for the princess, and with no hesitation, he rolls off the side of the mountain down into the deep, dark crater. This guy has really grown brave over the last few years. It's a lot of personal growth, so Link follows suit and plunges down into the depths. Where he lands is dark and hotter than hell. But Yonobo has made it down safely too, and the both of them powwow for a bit just to get their bearings. Who'd have thunk that there was something down here? Kind of like, who'd have thunk the Stormwind arc was real? No one knew that this was here, and I wonder if this is a formula that will repeat itself in the future of not knowing that something is right under your feet or right above you. Not that we would be snarky with constantly repeating story beats, am I right? Anyways, a voice calls out to Yonogo, beckoning him on to a temple-like structure nearby. This is a part of what was once called Gorondia, now a desolate temple of fire. And of course, look at who is waltzing their way towards it. Looks like it's temple time. Beyond a locked gate, the duo spot the princess standing in a heap of marbled rock. It all rises up to the ceiling in the center of the room, making it look like she has been trapped within it. And well, same process as before. There are five locks on the gate that need to be undone by finding five places within the temple to trigger their unlocks. Let's not be coy about it, the two immediately get a move on. This place is very quiet. It definitely seems like an ancient place that's been devoid of life for thousands of years, and it's in steep decline. Thankfully, though it looks to be confusing to traverse, it's really not too bad. The temple can be handled just one step at a time, one track at a time, one simple puzzle at a time. And missteps really aren't too punishing. Link and Yonobo are able to tackle the temple in no time at all and undo all of the padlocks on that main gate. Cracking open the rock on the ceiling reveals not the princess, but a gloomy eye, which stretches out into a delightfully evil surprise. Marbled Goma. Did you know that the marbled rock also doubled as an explosive? Well, neither did Link. Punting Yonobo at Goma's legs brings the beast down close enough for melee strikes, straight into the eyeball, making the encounter simple, but it still requires environmental awareness. Getting caught in those rock bombs would hurt, and if the knight overstays his welcome at the feet of the spider, then it will try to smash him like a bug. As the fight carries on, it covers almost the entirety of the arena, including the ceiling. If Link isn't good at aiming his shots with Yonobo, then he'll have to rely on luck when trying to bring Goma down for melee strikes. But all good things must come to an end eventually. Yonobo and Link working together manage to destroy the marbled Goma. 
The death of marbled goma reveals that it was safeguarding something, a shining gem just like the one that Tulin claimed at the Stormwind Ark. This one is for Yenobo. When he touches it, it takes them to that place beyond their realm, where the sages carry on awaiting their champions. Here is a Goron hero from the past who stood against Ganondorf during the imprisoning war beside King Raru and Princess Zelda. What he has to say is, well, precisely what Tulin's ancestor had to say, almost word for word, actually. But this is for Yunobo, not for Link. So the same event will be explained over again. The unnamed hero of old tells Yunobo a bit about the imprisoning war and their face-off against Ganondorf. King Raru's sacrifice was a bitter ending for all of them, a loss the entirety of the kingdom felt. When the princess came to see the Goron hero sometime later to ask for aid of the Gorons in the far-off future, he vowed to honor that request. The time of this ancient hero has passed. It's time for the sage to gift his descendant the power of their people. Inoba will serve as the new sage of fire. He is given the secret stone, which will amplify his ability so that he might stand against the Demon King. Yunobo is all too happy to join Link in this quest, to fight alongside the swordsman. Though he cannot physically be with Link at all times to help him along, he gifts to him his avatar. It will charge through enemies and barriers alike, as well as engage foes in the field with melee combat. Before they part ways, Yunobo vows to Link that he will always be there to fight at his side. Two down, two to go. The Goron are now free from the effects of the marbled rock, and soon life will return to normal on the mountain. Link wastes no time in making the long trek across the land to the southwest, to the land of the Gerudo. After the calamity, the Hylian crown retained a very positive relationship with the Gerudo in the years that followed. While the Gerudo once were an enemy of all others within Hyrule, that age passed when Ganondorf abandoned his reincarnation cycle. No longer suffering under the reign of an evil king, the Gerudo have become part of Hyrule. During his ventures south, Link of course comes across a plethora of things to do and people to meet. He also comes face to face with a Yiga assassin. Oh good! Apparently even without their leader Master Koga, they're still perfectly ready to hunt Link down. Wonder what's been going on with them all this time. When he descends upon the desert itself, trouble becomes apparent. It's not uncommon for sandstorms to be kicked up. It's a hostile environment to live in, after all. But not on this scale. Most of the Gerudo's territory is covered in dark sandstorms, which not only makes travel difficult and dangerous, but it's impossible to gauge the health of the city itself. There were troubles with the Rito and the Goron, and it looks like the Gerudo will be no different. At the Karakara Bazaar, there are barricades and warriors all about the perimeter. Some of the vendors are still trying to carry out trade, but the path to the main city is blocked by a wall of sand and people are afraid of what's inside of it. Well, no sense in delaying the inevitable, Link runs right in to see what's so scary about the sand and what the hell? Yep, no idea, no idea about this one, but it moves weird, it's almost impervious to physical damage, and it is motivated. The valley is covered in weird clusters of these bone creatures. Link figures out that they're weak to elemental damage types, but they're still tough to bring down. It's no wonder the Gerudo have been pushed out of the city and forced to barricade the bazaar. His map is completely non-functional while he's inside the sandstorm. There's a massive rift running through the path, making it hard to keep track of what direction he's going. The enemies are a nasty bit of work, the weather itself is a hazard, and it's just kind of spooky in here. The gravity of this invasion settles in when Link reaches the heart of Gerudo territory, their town. It's in shambles, it seems to have been abandoned. Entire buildings have been flooded with sand, tents are torn down, all life has fled, those terrible bone creatures stalk the market and the alleys, and the modest palace is empty. 
It looks like a battle took place here, but where did the rest of the Gerudo go? The knight finds some hope eventually, the entrance to a shelter beneath the palace. A guard is keeping the entrance safe and doesn't immediately recognize who Link is. Even in this state of emergency, men are not allowed to enter to shelter with the Gerudo. She initially turns Link away, but tells him that so long as he avoids the shelter, they'll let him walk around the rubble above. Well, alright, so off he goes. While exploring the ins and outs of the buildings above, Link finds something concerning, a small girl completely on her own. He runs up to her to figure out what she's doing up here all by herself, but she bolts. He follows her back to what appears to be an old classroom and finds that a hole has been tunneled up to the surface from the shelter below. He drops down and is immediately intercepted by Garuda warriors, but it is the great Boliara herself that saves him. She is the guardian of the Gerudo chief and captain of the guard. Seems that Link hasn't been around for some time. The guards didn't recognize him, so Boliara gives him a pass. She reminds them of who he is, that he has favored with the chief, and that he is welcome in the shelter, even if he is a man. Boliara has heard of the events at the castle, but the situation in the desert is far too dire for them to lend aid. The skeletal creatures are called Gibdos, and after the upheaval, they appeared in droves and forced the Gerudo either out of the city or into the shelter. Boliara feels shame that she was unable to retain control over the events on the surface. Until their territory is secured, they cannot help the knight. Lady Riju is still the sitting chief of the Gerudo and has become strong. During the Calamity, she was a girl, now she would be a young woman, and with how Boliara speaks of her, she has become a warrior in her own right. She's training in the ruins to the north, so Link will venture out to pay the chieftain a visit. It's pretty hard to miss where she is, she's literally calling lightning down on command and learning to hit targets with it. But she's struggling to aim and is hard on herself for missing. Link's arrival is unexpected, but not unwelcome. The two catch up on their woes and come to an agreement. They both want the other to succeed in their endeavors, so they'll assist one another. They will work together to quickly bring about an end to the issues that the Gerudo are facing first. Riju has been trying to hone her abilities against the Gibdos. They're very weak to her lightning. They work out a way to simplify it. Link directs and aims the attack, and she launches. Together, they're able to tame this wild power of hers just a bit. If they work together, they can use it against anything that Link can hit with an arrow. After their short training session, a strange chime rings out from the sky, but before they can discuss what it could be, a Gerudo warrior approaches with news from the city. Gibdos are beginning to swarm and readying an attack on the bazaar. Boliara and her fighters have already moved out to engage with them, so the knight and the chief follow suit and bolt for the trade center. It looks like the Gibdos are spawning out of strange sacks that are vulnerable to Riju's lightning. They must all work together to hold back the swarm, destroy the nest, kill the Gibdo without allowing any of them near the bazaar itself. The Gibda would tear the citizens apart given the chance. Once this wave is handled, Riju informs Boliara of the Gibda's weakness, but their meeting is cut short by, that's right, Weird Zelda. She's just sort of gazing off into the distance, and while this hasn't really boded well in the past, this time it's a disaster. Massive columns of wind and sand kick up in the distance. Should those make contact with the city or the bazaar, it would be absolutely devastating. They let off a bit, but this violent development has to be addressed immediately. Zelda walks off into the sand, alarming the Gerudo chief as the storms are extremely dangerous. What remaining Gerudo forces can be spared rush back to the city to aid or defend it in any way that they can. There are still civilians in the shelters that must be protected. By the time they've arrived, Gibdo hives are already sprouting up around the city limits. It's all connected and very concerning, but the immediate danger are the Gibdo. 
an oddly soothing voice pipes in from the sky, just like what happened with Tulin and Yanobo, beckoning them on to go someplace, though where isn't really clear at the moment. That can wait, though. There are more pressing matters. Link aids them in setting up defenses at each entrance point of the city as quickly as he can. There are three hives that need to be destroyed, one at each point of entry. As soon as each point is covered, the invasion begins. Link goes from area to area, aiding in their defenses, killing foes, and destroying each of the hives. The Garuda warriors that protect the grounds are certainly powerful defenders, and the addition of Link to their arsenal tips the balance strongly in their favor, and the town is saved, at least for now. This is far from the end. The source of these terrible creatures must be found. A mural within the shelter depicts something that has caught Riju's eye. She and Link venture down, and Riju explains her thought process. It seems to depict a disaster from the past, and then directions on how to proceed should another take place. Standing back to back with the throne, witness red pillars across the vast sea. Unite the pillars and reveal the lightning stone and open the way. You who can hear my voice, come to me. I await you. Well, those are some pretty on-the-nose directions that are just so convenient. Link goes to the throne room, stands back to back with it, and marks three huge pillars out in the desert. Visiting each one, he unlocks a light source and moves each one to face the next, forming a triangular link between all of them. When all three are connected, a secret of the desert rises to the surface. It's perhaps a monument of some sort? It's difficult to tell from afar. When he draws close to it, Riju joins him. Awaiting them at the monument, is Princess Zelda, being off-putting and unspeaking, gone just as quickly as she arrived. Riju believes that this is the last part of the mural's riddle. Reveal the lightning stone and open the way. So, she strikes the stone with her lightning ability, and in response, from the sands rises a great temple. Just like before with the ziggurats of the Rito and the Goron, the existence of this temple was kept hidden, cast into legend. No one knew it was here. Kind of odd since it was so close to Gerudo territory, but, you know, let's not overthink it. The entrance to this lightning temple is sealed by a huge Gibdo hive sack. I wonder what will be inside. Will it be riches? Prosperity, happiness, nachos? Well, within the sack is the Queen Gibdo, a massive moth-like creature made of piss and vinegar that hits like a truck. Before they even set foot inside the temple, it engages them in a brawl atop the sands of the desert. It kicks up the sands to limit visibility on the field and is hard to get close to. Just harming it requires shocking at first, so Riju can't get too far away or Link really won't have any way to make contact with it. But the Queen Gibdo doesn't stay too long. Once it takes a few hits, it retreats to the top of the temple to heal and wait. Now they can enter and begin their climb. As one might expect, this place is dark, suffocating, and full of Gibdo. The presence of Riju and the two sage avatars makes it a bit less lonely, but there are dangers around every corner of this place. When they reach the heart of the structure, they find their way forward barred by the same gimmicks as temples before. That voice that they heard calls out to them, giving them clear directions. The way to the top is barred, so find four batteries and charge them. Well, hero, you know what to do, get out there! What's unfortunate is that, like other temples before, this place doesn't have a lot to say. It's a fixture of the past, conveniently placed here as an obstacle just to be overcome. Almost a place that's quite out of place. Clearly once of importance, now it just doesn't really have any relevance. And like the Divine Beasts, when its purpose is served, will it just be cast aside as something of no consequence? But like all the tales told before this adventure, its story has already been played out in the past. Not to be lived in the present, it's best to merely be appreciated from afar. They charge each of the batteries, one by one, and get the main lift working again. And they can see their end goal, an altar with something glowing atop it. 
But the Queen Gibdo's hive sack is covering it, which can only mean one thing. Final boss fight time. The Queen cannot kick up huge sandstorms in here, but this time around she has four Gibdo hives to hide behind, which will most assuredly spill out fiends eventually. It's tough getting Riju close enough to activate her lightning, and then it's a matter of striking the Queen Gibdo. This damned creature is so tanky and so wily that this makes for a long fight. At the halfway point, the hives activate and start spewing out more challenging foes. But if Link can survive the initial waves and start taking out hives with Riju's lightning, then it becomes a bit more easy to balance out with time, until finally they're back to a one-on-one -on -one with the Queen, or two-on-one -on -one with the Queen. After what feels like hours back and forth, they kill the Queen Gibdo. This will stop the flow of the monsters into the desert Give the Gerudo time to breathe and rebuild. The sandstorms will end, the roads will open, and things can get back to normal. The bits of hive remaining over the altar fall away, revealing another secret stone beneath it. This is meant for Riju, not Link. It floats to the young woman, and upon her touch, they're taken away to that other realm. Awaiting Riju is one of her ancestors, who served as a sage to King Raru long ago. She has no name to give nor a story to tell about herself. Instead, she explains to Riju bits of the imprisoning war and their failure to stop the Demon King one fateful day. When all was said and done, the lone Zelda came to this Garuda warrior and begged for her aid in the far-off future. And the sage vowed that when the Demon King returned, the Garuda would stand ready. The warrior commands Riju to honor this vow, to take up the mantle as the next Sage of Lightning to aid the princess and the knight in the battle against the Demon King. Riju is no ordinary youth. She well understands the burden of leadership and battle, and this is a challenge that she welcomes. She gladly accepts this new role and becomes the new sage. As proof of her dedication to this, she gifts to Link her avatar, which will call down powerful lightning strikes on command for the knight, just as she has done in the desert. Even if she can't be with him in person on his ventures, she will lend him aid, and when the time comes to stand against the Demon King, she will be there no matter what. The future is once again bright for the Gerudo people. The skies are clear, the sandstorms are gone, the Gibda will be handled, and the city is already being put back together. Everything is as it should be. Riju, Boliara, and Link have some words between them of thanks and looking forward to a better future. Though Riju is a bit concerned with the present-day Zelda that they've been spotting. The ancient Gerudo Sage showed them that Zelda was in the far-off past. Somehow she was taken back to the Dawn of the Kingdom, which means the Zelda that's been walking around now is not their Zelda. She would be tens of thousands of years old, it's just not possible. They lack pivotal information though, so Riju will do her best to look into it while Link is away. And he can hang out, wrap up loose ends, do some business, adventure around a bit, but there's at least one more place that he needs to see to, the Zora. He'd best get a move on, see what troubles are brewing at the Domain. Maybe he'll get to see his good friend Sidon again. Well, it's a bit of a trek, but an enjoyable one. Plenty of things to do and people to see. He, um, but he smells Zora's Domain before he sees it. You see, there's black sludge all over the road leading up to their territory, and I can't help but imagine that it smells like burnt, dank turds and diesel. Travelers have all but given up on reaching it. If you're not a bird or a fish, then good luck managing the sludge covering everything. When finally he gets to the domain, he finds that it's covered in the ick. It's literally falling out of the sky. The water is almost completely black and you can just, mmm, you just taste the aroma. The first group of Zora that he engages with are caught up on a particular statue being covered in sludge. Seems to be important to them, so 
like, clears it off. And of course, it's a statue depicting the majesty of Prince Sidon. He is, he's a great guy, of course, just so flamboyant and truly adored by his people. But apparently it also depicts Prince Sidon's best friend in the whole wide world, too. Swordsman Link. This, this statue suddenly makes me really uncomfortable. It doesn't take them too long to recognize who Link is, though. The gal in green has heard all sorts of stories about Link from her fiancé, Prince Sidon. This is his beloved wife-to-be, Yona. And she's thrilled to meet her husband's apparent best friend in the whole wide world. And Yona seems wonderful. She's fully dedicated herself to being a caretaker of her people during this troubling time. They'd heard of Link and Zelda being missing, of the troubles in central Hyrule, but of course they couldn't lend aid to their neighbors. Their own homeland had been through trials of their own. Yona asks Link to go see Sidon atop a nearby mountain peak at Mifa Court. At a treatment center where she's helping treat her people who have been exposed to sludge, Yona asks Link to grab a couple special fish while he's up on the mountain. The scales on them are rare and the Zora blacksmith can use them to fix up his old Zora armor from the Calamity, but they require clean water to thrive in. So off he goes to scale that mountain and apparently find his best friend. Link opts to take a bit of a shortcut up the mountain rather than just raw dog climb it. Everything is covered in grime, so he'll just skip it all together. Atop the mountain at Mipha's court, some water yet still flows clear and clean due to Prince Sidon's efforts to purify it. The Zora royalty is ecstatic to see Link once again. It's been some time since they last saw one another, and knowing that the night is well is a great relief. The two of them catch up on what's been going on in their lives, a conversation not to be taken lightly. Sidon wants to help Link in any way that he can, but with things the way they are in the domain, it's just not possible. Of course, Link will assist the Zora in any way that he can. Making mention of the sky islands he woke up on gets Sidon thinking, because the sludge seems to be coming from the sky, so maybe there's something above the domain causing all of this. A local Zora historian has been trying to look into that matter. He'd be a good source of information for Link, so Sidon gives him directions and lets him go on his way. Maybe the historian can help him out with the princess, too. The prince himself must stay here to continue purifying as much water as possible. Without him doing this, the city below will be uninhabitable for his people. Link grabs a few of the fish that Lady Yona mentioned before going back down the mountain because he wants to get that Zora armor before hunting down this historian. With this, Link can ascend waterfalls with ease, which will make getting around the mountain so much easier. Maybe about halfway up, Link finds the historian working through some rubble. This place was revealed oh so conveniently by the upheaval. You know, once again, who knew this was here? Wow, what a series of coincidences. Just so happens to directly benefit Link in the present, almost like this is a really shitty and contrived writing set. Link <clears throat> helps the historian get the stone slate put back together, and they discover a set of directions. Stand upon the land of the skyfish and behold its lofty view. Among the floating rocks you see, a droplet waits for you. Through this droplet, shoot an arrow with the mark of the king. Do this task and you shall reveal a most wondrous thing. See the water bridge's resting spot with your own two eyes, that which connects the Zora to the people of the skies. How specific. I also didn't realize that that rhymed. The historian tells Link to go see King Dorfin about the mark of the king. The king has been away from the domain to investigate the sludge and should be back, but... Well, Link didn't see the king when he was there last, and going back to inquire about him doesn't really yield any results. The king has been away, and it's not known when he'll be back. But in another stupid coincidence, there are children playing in the throne room and talking about a super secret spot. 
In their game, the king has been covered in sludge and needs to go somewhere nearby in the mountain to get clean, a pristine sanctuary he once told them about that they've integrated into their game of pretend, with a secret entrance behind a waterfall. Well, Link goes from waterfall to waterfall, traveling up each one to scope them out, and he finds this secret pristine sanctuary in no time at all. The king has indeed taken quite a bit of damage from the sludge during his investigation and is here to recover his strength. But Dorfin isn't the type to abandon his home or his people, yet he's secluded himself here to recover. The king explains that this has to do with Zelda. After the upheaval, sludge and ruins began to fall from the sky. As his responsibility, the king departed from the domain to go investigate. He came face to face with the princess, who was in the company of a beast covered in sludge. Zelda ordered the monster to attack the king. He fought it off, but he was injured in the process. After that, the princess vanished. It was like she'd appeared just to murder King Dorofin. He and his advisor were worried that if people knew what happened, if news got out, then the princess would be considered an enemy of the Zora. So he decided to hide himself away here to heal and contemplate what their next move should be. The knight and the king share information about their discoveries, eventually leading to talk of the historian and the stone slate. The mark of the king that it refers to are the king's scales, which Dorvan happily gifts five of to Link, anything to help the process, and should he need more, the king will gladly offer them. Link has what he needs to proceed, but before leaving the injured king, Dorfin shares that this whole affair has been very eye-opening for him. To be caught so off-guard and injured like this means that it's probably time for him to retire. Rulership is best left to the young and the strong, and his time is past. When things are better, the title of king will be passed on to Sidon. The now prince will make for a fine ruler. This is a choice that is easy to support and cheer on. Time to get a move on, so that those better times can become a reality. Link returns to the top of Ploymouth Mountain to update Sidon on the condition of his father and to tell him about the stone slate that the historian had been working on. The prince is now aware that Princess Zelda may not be who she appears and that she is to be treated as a hostile party for now. They need to look upwards for an island in the sky shaped like a fish, and of course it's not too hard to spot, it's right above them. Link has plenty of flying contraptions at his command to make it up there, and then spotting a tear-shaped formation is just a matter of looking around. He shoots a scale of the king through it, and something a bit unexpected happens. The tear itself doesn't really do anything. The scaled arrow goes down into the reservoir, and it activates something beneath the water. But, well, Link isn't a great swimmer, and that water is murky. He can't really be diving in to check it out. The best swimmer around is Sidon, so Link goes back to speak with his good friend about it. He happens to arrive when Sidon and Yona are having a bit of a discussion. Like functional adults that truly care for each other, they're being rational and unheeded. They're talking it through, but they set it aside when Link walks up. What's in the reservoir could be their key to reaching what's in the sky, what's producing all this sludge. And Lady Yona agrees. You see, she wants her fiancé to rise to his full potential. And for a while, she's been concerned with his reserved nature. So she encourages him to abandon his worries, trust in them to do what he is doing, and go with Link. Pursue this to its full end. Let others step in to do this work. Before they can finish, they're again interrupted, this time by a monster from the sky, the Great Mighty Pooh. Because it's covered in a layer of sludge, they can't directly hit its body. Lady Yona tells Sidon to get a move on, to help Link save the domain, and he happily obliges. The two of them work together, figuring this creature out. Sidon can, on command, shield Link in water, which the knight can then use as a water attack. 
It's a bit awkward at first, but Link manages to use the water attack to get Sludge off the monster, which opens it up to normal attack. And once they've gotten that down, it is a piece of pizza pie. Together, the prince and the knight destroy their foe. Sidon immediately tries to usher Yona back to the domain, but she doubles down on her previous statement. Link needs help solving this. Sidon has other responsibilities to see to, and he has to delegate rather than try to do everything himself. She knows that after the death of his sister Mipha, he harbors fear of losing somebody that he cares about, but he can't let that fear hold him back. When he tries to argue again, she firmly puts her foot down and tells him that he must leave this place to her. No more waiting in the past, only the future, only success. She'll be fine. The prince finally accepts this and casts his fears aside. He will venture on with the knight to save his homeland. First things first for the duo, the reservoir and that beam of light. They powwow for a moment, but a strange presence makes itself known to them, something from the sky, and you get two guesses as to the exact sequence of events that are about to play out based on what's happened before. I bet you can guess it beat for beat. Well, no voice to ring out just yet, so the two of them focus on that beam of light. Sidon creates a massive whirlpool down into the light. It will pull Link to the bottom of the reservoir where it's coming from. Sidon can see something is down there, so he'll keep this whirlpool going long enough for Link to get to it. And what the knight finds down there are ancient waterworks. Researchers would have an absolute field day with this place. But the beam of light has a very clear source down here atop a large column of stone. When Link reaches it, he finds a Zonai gate of some sort, and touching it launches that beam up into the sky hitting a landmass. It activates a massive waterfall which Link can swim up. The Knight and Sidon meet back up at the surface to celebrate their success. They can both use that waterfall. There's no way that Sidon is sitting this out. As predicted, a voice calls out from above, beckoning them on up to the temple in the sky. They can both hear it, but this is truly meant for Sidon. Ready to face what's next, the two of them ascend the massive waterfall together and start their climb. And oh baby, do we still have one hell of a ways to go.